Welcome back to the Story of Software podcast. Today we're joined by Colm O'Donnell, the Chief Technology Officer at ESW, and we're going to talk about e-commerce fulfillment technology. Colm, how are you doing today? Not so bad, Bodrick. How are you? I'm very really looking forward to talking about this topic as it's quite topical. Just by way of introduction, Colm has been at the forefront of technology leadership for over 20 years. He's worked at major organizations like O2 and City and in startup world with organizations like Ding. And I guess you've been there for the journey from startup to unicorn at ESW. Colm's led the company from the technological perspective from 10 employees. And now there's many hundreds. You won the Deloitte Fast 53 times and achieved unicorn status, I think, in, within the last six months. Yeah, that, that's correct. Uh, I suppose the, the one that you missed is, uh, as many of your, your invitees have had, as I worked in Iona at the beginning of my career, and you can see it as a reoccurring theme in, in some of the CTOs and engineering leaders that you've interviewed in the past, that they've worked there too. Yeah, that, that's a really interesting point. Um, many of the people leading tech companies in Ireland uh, have come from Iona. It, it's actually, it's very remarkable. So yeah, don't annoy any ex-Iona people, I think is probably a good message. if you're <laughs> Yeah, the mafia is there. <laughs> So, Colin, could you tell us a little bit about ESW and your role in its evolution? Um, yeah, so I joined in 2014. Uh, the company was about four years old at that point. Um, so we just passed over our, our decades last year. Um, and it was difficult to celebrate in COVID times, actually. Um, but in that seven years I've been there, we've grown from being a very small company that was already growing a good bit and had some opportunity to now being obviously a very large company. I think we've got over 500 employees in this last six months and we continue to grow. So really, I suppose the role that I played in that is, you know, I joined as CTO from, from Ding and uh, joined a, a small company with a huge amount of potential. We'd already had some work with Victoria's Secret and we managed to capitalize on on that and building out a, a commerce platform for them um, but it's like most you know startup companies uh, from a technology side you're always looking for more investment from the business in order to improve the platform and to add on new features for uh, for your customers uh, and really we are very much a, a sales driven company which was which is actually great because the first customers that any company has really gives you know, a drive to the company. And our first customers were Victoria's Secret and Nike. And you can imagine like, having two of those customers onto your platform at the beginning. They always demanded the absolute best from us. And that really pushed us uh, into a situation where we were a small, scrappy, Irish-based company that was you know, trying to please and uh, align to what a large US multinational enterprise uh, required. And we learned so much and so much of that learning is built into our platform now which we're able to share with other customers and and has really been successful that we've had that uh, drive and philosophy behind us from the beginning um, could you tell us or actually maybe help us with a definition of what e-commerce fulfillment is yeah well i suppose it varies a little bit for us in esw we um what we're really trying to do is we take retailers who are already working on a domestic strategy and we try and bring them internationally. So what typically happens is they have a, a Magento store or a Shopify store or some kind of homebrew custom 
e-commerce uh, application and they have a domestic supply chain. So often it's a US company, they've got an agreement with UPS or DHL to do deliveries and then they want to grow internationally. And so where ESW steps in is we try and extend the commerce platform and the logistics platform that a retailer has to support international. And that means that as much as possible, we try and abstract the complexity of international away from those retailers and from those customers. So if they have to think about what's specific about Canada or what's specific about Thailand, then you know, we haven't done our job properly. You know, we're trying to make sure that that kind of complexity is on our side and in our platform, not in the retailer side. And that allows the retailer to focus more on the marketing of their product and less on the, on the technical implementation or the logistics of fulfillment. Colin, how would you describe or conceive of the major changes around e-commerce fulfillment over the last number of years? Um, so it's been huge, really. When I joined, there was very vague requirements and they're very, I suppose, very limited options for people who are going internationally. Typically, what people did is they had to build a distribution center in the country or in the market that they were going for and build a commerce solution for that country and handle end to end everything, all the complexities for that. And that means you took on a huge amount of risk because you had to have an inventory pile. You had to have an inventory pile in Australia if you're sending into Australia. And that's not incredibly efficient. You know, if those particular product lines don't sell in that market, very difficult to start moving them out from that market into another in order to resell them. There's a lot of kind of finance and, and kind of settlement processes and taxation processes that actually are barriers in, in doing that. And so really what we've seen over the last few years is that companies have become enabled to have one inventory pool and really use that one single inventory pool into multiple markets. That's something that didn't really exist six or seven years ago. You know, the, the efficiencies that's brought to organizations has been huge. That's on the retailer side, but on the shopper side, you know, obviously mobile payments have become a, a huge deal and that's constantly growing. Europe is incredibly far behind what we see in Asia and in Africa on mobile payments where that's the norm. And so Europe is fastly growing, but it's still well behind on mobile payments, mobile payment adoption. And what we'll see over the next few years, I think, is that the, the fastest growing markets for mobile payments will be in Europe. But that's not a trend we've seen in the past. Um, is there a lot of pressure you're observing towards topics like uh, sustainability? I know a lot of larger organizations are under pressure from shareholders. And how is that filtering through to the world of e-commerce? Yeah, so sustainability is one of those is one of those topics which, again, maybe ten years ago, people weren't all that concerned about within e-commerce, or weren't concerned about because the scale of the operations weren't that large. Now it is absolutely becoming the forefront. I was presenting last week in London some of uh, the results of our surveys, and the questions at the end weren't to do as much with the survey or the presentation, they were to do with sustainability. You know, how do companies like eShop World and like our customers actually have a sustainable strategy for, for fulfillment? And so eShop World have been working on a, on a strategy for those. You know, it really begins with 
the outbound shipment, how do we measure the carbon footprint of that outbound shipment? So on our checkouts now, our retailers have the option to put a, a carbon counter on it. They're able to choose shipping methods that are uh, carbon neutral or carbon offset. These might be slower uh, shipment methods or they might have uh, they might have options that you're able to do a, an offset payment against the carbon footprint. Those are like very straightforward, obvious ones, but less obvious are efficiencies within the supply chain, making sure that you have the right parcel sizes for the items that you're shipping. And that's a logistics operation in its, of itself. And there was a major project we did for one of our major customers a few years ago, where we used to repack 60 or 70% of their goods into smaller packaging. So they would deliver for a domestic market in these large packages, which we realized were incredibly inefficient, especially for international. And not only were they driving up the charges, but they were driving up the environmental costs of shipment. And so a repackaging project like that can really reduce the impact of those packages. The last piece on sustainability is, is the returns. So if you consider the international direct consumer market, we take a package and we ship it from one place in the world to another place in the world. And then if a customer decides to return it, the old way of doing this was that it would be shipped all the way back to the distribution center of the retailer. And that's an incredibly inefficient process. And it's an incredibly environmentally unfriendly process. So there's a lot of work that's going on at the moment to work out strategies for how do we reintroduce that returned product into the market that it's previously been sold in. So it doesn't have to go all the way back. I think governments and regulators have a, have a role to play in this, where the only option that they used to give was destruction. So you could destroy it within the country, and, and that would release the taxes and the costs. But that's not hugely efficient. Your only two options are destruction or return. So the new ways of, of looking at it is how do we re-inject that product back into the economy to create a kind of circular economy around returns? And that's a, bit, a, a piece that has started in the last couple of years, and I think has huge potential in the next few years. And uh, returns in this, in this space are really going to grow and it's going to be a concern not just for the retailers, but for shoppers as well. Tom, could you tell us a little bit about what the impact of COVID has been on the fulfillment side of e-commerce? I mean, I think we're all aware that e-commerce is gained a huge amount of traction during the last 18 or 20 months. What has that meant on the fulfillment side? Yeah, so we obviously, and um, our employees, our partners, our customers, and, and everyone were affected by COVID as well. And there was a huge amount of uncertainty back in March 2020 when we really understood the impact of it. We had distribution centers of our partners closing down because of concerns of COVID and of passing COVID and of what the health impacts of it were going to be. And it was really unclear how this would all end up. And fortunately, you know, e-commerce, international e-commerce, but e-commerce in general has been one of the industries that really economically benefited from COVID. But obviously it's had a, a huge impact on our employees and partners. What's, what's really happened is that we've accelerated by a number of years the adoption of online sales. Um, so there's people who would probably have never bought online who were encouraged or in fact you know, almost forced to purchase online. In that survey that I was presenting last week, we found that you know, an, an older generation, which were probably had never bought online, 
52% of those bought online during COVID. And that's just a huge market that opened up. And we could see it in our figures where by May 2020, we were seeing our peak volume. So that's our Christmas volume from 2019. We were seeing it by it during the summer in 2020. And we've been growing ever since then. And that's had a huge impact on our ability to, as you said, become that unicorn company. Did you find it difficult to deal with, I suppose, because I've spoken to a number of individuals who found that there was a very strange situation whereby on the one hand, business was going very well. And on the other hand, what was going on in the wider world was very challenging and very difficult. And actually dealing with that contrast presented an enormous challenge. Is, is that something you could talk about? Yeah, um, I think you're right. Like, obviously, you know, industries such as the pharmaceutical industry as well had the same challenge. There's been a number of businesses that have really improved over this last 18 months and that have become much stronger than they were before. And there's companies that have been less successful, you know, obviously retail. I know nightclubs are opening up here in Dublin for the first time in, what is it, 500 days. Obviously, some industries have just been really challenged by it. And it, it is difficult uh, to see that. And, and the company is doing really well. But we can't forget that the employees and the customers may not be doing that well. And so there's been a lot of efforts, especially by our management team and by our HR team, to make sure that the, the mental well-being and physical well-being of our employees have been taken care of in this time. You're absolutely right. It can be difficult to position you know, this huge delight at this, at this company boon, but, you know, this huge impact to, to our employees and, and customers and getting that messaging right has been a challenge and it's something that we constantly work on. I think one of the things that we've really seen with our partners, though, are with our, with our customers is that our companies that have done really well recovered from the March plunge in share price has been whether or not they invested in international and we can see the companies that have been successful during covid have been those who were already internationally diversified so if they're available in multiple countries we've seen that their share price has improved very very quickly and the wider their international coverage the more they've improved and so that's a really interesting uh, point that we that we've seen companies that are you know just domestically located haven't been able to really take advantage of the COVID effect and uh, companies that are, are internationally diversified have been able to, which is a nice trend to see. I'm also interested to know, was there anything specific that you started doing with yourself or with your own team in terms of looking after morale during lockdowns and during those very uncertain moments? They were talking about the kind of first six months of the whole COVID era. Like, how did you go about ensuring that individuals were, I suppose, in, in the right mental space or at least supporting them to the best that you could? Yeah, it's really interesting because at the beginning, you know, I think a lot of people had took a lot of comfort from, uh, from connecting with their colleagues in, in their homes. And we did have a, a social regime where there were quizzes and there were time off for people who, who needed it within that time. You know, obviously we had to cancel some of the, you know, in-person events like town halls or summer parties or Christmas parties. They haven't happened for the last couple of years now. Um, and we replaced them with a well-being program, which was run by our HR team. And in that we had sessions, potentially 
one-on-one sessions, but often group sessions on how you keep yourself healthy, how you keep yourself mentally healthy. And, you know, employees were encouraged to do this within their working time. You know, that, that was an area which we felt, especially with people getting to grips with this new way of working, that they needed time to adjust. They needed time to start handling different pressures that they hadn't had before. In particular, you know, you can imagine with your children at home are working in, in an apartment that probably wasn't suitable for, for working from home, that these employees needed additional help. And the company was, was absolutely there with that well-being program. Can we talk about how maybe the technology or your way of working uh, had to adapt or evolve during this time? So obviously, working with you, Podrick, you know that a lot of, our, a lot of the people who work for us in the technology side are already remote or were remote in advance. So we had uh, workers as far as Kiev and Spain and Portugal and South America as well. And really what's happened is that's, that's accelerated. Obviously, the, all the systems were in place uh, in order to support it. And now we just had a question of scale. Like, how do we move from having uh, 100 people working remote to having 500 people working remote? And our technical operations team did a, a real stormer on that. But it was a huge advantage that right from the beginning of eShop, we've been adopting a, a cloud-first strategy, which means that we have almost no machines in our office itself. Everything is cloud-based. And that really allowed us to, to pivot and lean into to remote working. And now, you know, we have, um, we have a, a slightly different problem, which is that because everyone's remote working, we actually have a challenge coming back to the office. So we were maybe two to 300 people when COVID started and we're five to 600 people now, and we haven't got a, a larger office space. So what that really means is that remote working is here forever. You know, it's, it's now part of how we're going to work. And the, the push that we got during COVID is basically now a permanent push. And I think the, the challenge that we're now going to face on the return is the hybrid remote work. What do you do in a meeting when 50% of the people are on the phone and 50% of the people are in the office? How do you engage those people on the phone and make sure that their voices are heard inside in meetings, inside collaborative events? And I think that's something that we haven't solved yet. We've only, in the last couple of weeks, had to, had to really uh, engage with it. So um, I think that's going to be an interesting change. So ask me that question again in six months, Porter. Very good. Actually, one idea I was thinking for that particular challenge is if you have, let's say, six people who are present in an office and six people who are via video call, can you get those six people in an office to also be on an individual laptop and maybe be in six different parts of the office so that there's a level playing pitch? Because what I've observed historically is if you have five people in a room, and five people who are dialing in, there's a kind of an asymmetry in terms of the dynamic. And the five people in the room almost have an advantage in terms of how the meeting progresses and their access to the communication within the meeting. So I don't know if you've uh, any thoughts on that. Yeah, no, you're, you're absolutely right. And that's been my observation as well. The people on the phone are more hesitant to give input uh, between what people are doing online and what they're doing in the room. It's a more natural flow to the conversation in the room. So a couple of things that we've been doing is 
we've recently introduced uh, digital whiteboards. So that means people in the room when they're doing whiteboard exercises, which is quite often in, in technology, as you imagine, that those whiteboards are shared automatically into your conversation. Uh, so that means that people who are on the phone can actually contribute towards you know, that design and that whiteboard session as well. And that's something that we didn't have before. And we didn't even consider really before. Normally, there'd be one person who'd be out of the office in these meetings. But now with the majority of the people being out of the office, having that collaboration was pretty important. I think really, though, it's going to be solved by creating not policies, but cultural norms around how you deal with people on the phone, that the people in the office don't just ask questions of those people in front of them, but they explicitly go out and they ask the people on the phones, you know, is your voice being heard? You've been very quiet. Are you able to contribute uh, towards this? And there's also responsibility on the people who are on the phone. I think we've come into a, into a norm where people are multitasking in meetings, where they're answering Slack messages or answering email messages. And when there's people in the office who aren't doing that multitask, and there's people on the phone who are doing the multitask, the people on the phone are putting themselves at a disadvantage. So that really has to stop. But again, it's a cultural norm that has to be identified. Everyone has to understand and then you know, take steps to, to reduce it. That's very interesting. I'd also like to pick up on something you mentioned earlier. So you spoke on your headcount increasing very significantly during the COVID era. Do you hire differently when everything is remote? Everything from the interview process through to onboarding to assimilating people into the team. What's changed at ESW in that regard? So I think we've, we've formalized it an awful lot. And it's difficult for us to, to know if we formalized it because of COVID or we formalized it because of growth and sheer numbers of onboarding. We have, obviously, we now send out packages to everybody who onboards, which includes, you know, laptop and, you know, marketing material and, you know, the swag uh, bundles, which I don't think was prevalent before. I know some larger multinationals were doing it before. There's also a formal onboarding quite formal onboarding process with training that we do, which is all done online and done by a live, it's not you know, video, so that people can actually interact with each other and interact with the trainer. Um, and there's a, a management training, which is how we onboard and just knowing you know, how do we keep touch with our employees who are working remote, how often we keep in touch with them, you know, uh, what our one-to-one process is going to be. I think that, that's it. I think, I think still, you know, the, the point that I made earlier on about the social aspect to it, I think that's something that we're, we still need to do a, a lot of work on. You know, how do, how do we keep the employees socially engaged? If all you ever see of your employees is, are your coworkers is during meetings and the meeting starts on the hour and finishes 10 minutes before the hour, there's no time for, the, for that social line. So what we've taken to doing is first five minutes of most meetings are still our, our social parts of the meetings. And this originally occurred naturally because people were coming on late. A subset would have a, a chat beforehand. But it's really been more formalized now where um, people give some time for the human interaction at the beginning of calls to really get to know each other. And you're seeing the same people on calls again and again and again. Um, and that gives you throughout the day, throughout the week, throughout the months, and insight into them and give some time for the connection outside of just the business connection.
You mentioned earlier, Colin, that you were in London quite recently. Do you foresee a significant impact on e-commerce fulfillment post-Brexit? Yeah, so Brexit had a uncertainty effect for, for logistics. There, we, we, as part of that survey that I was presenting last week, we asked a lot of our shoppers and a lot of other e-commerce shoppers that aren't on our network, we asked them how they felt about Brexit. And I think before Brexit, they were, they were quite confident that they would continue buying from the UK, regardless of the delays. And that is a huge point towards the strength of the UK brands. The, the UK, especially the luxury brands coming out of the UK, are very appealing to people in Europe. And people who want to buy those luxury brands are, are willing to put up with a certain amount of logistics disruption or a certain amount of costs in order to achieve it. The survey that actually we, we ran, ran before Brexit and then ran again after Brexit. And you could see in the, in the numbers the uncertainty beforehand and then afterwards the fact that they just bought anyway, that there was very little impact to Brexit really on the, in this market. Charges were very clear and the lead times of when the delivery was as clear as it could be, people would still buy. So we saw only 12%, I think, of the respondents in that survey actually said that they wouldn't buy from the UK due to Brexit. And that's a much lower number than I think we were expecting. That's very interesting. Supply chain challenges have become very topical. This kind of supply chain has become front page news. Would you be able to speak a little bit about what are the causes of the disruptions we're seeing right now and how this might play out in the months ahead? Yeah, I, I think there's going to be a reasonably challenging time, uh, not just in, in the international market, but uh, here in Ireland as well. Um, you know, there's, there's a couple of different trends that's going to impact the price and availability of goods. So there is definitely a shortfall in supply capacity in certain markets. And that, that supply capacity is going to drive up the cost of shipping goods. And coupled with, I suppose, in post-COVID inflation as well, there's going to be, I think, a, a sharp increase in some of those prices. So what we've seen with our retailers is to avoid the, the worst of, of the logistics concerns, they're going to start running peak promotions earlier and earlier in the year. This is a trend that we actually saw starting a couple of years ago, even before COVID, where in order to reduce pressure on the logistics supply chains, they've started watering down like their Black Friday promotions to being you know, pre-peak promotions starting you know, on the 11th of November or, or earlier. And now into even October, they're trying to encourage shoppers to buy for Christmas as early as possible to reduce the pressure on their own distribution centers and on their logistics networks. And that trend has just been elevated by COVID. So I suppose the the upshot of all of it is, you know, if we're planning for Christmas, the retailers are sending very clear message that they feel that we should reduce pressure on the supply chain. And we should listen to them as, as consumers and say, if we want to prepare for Christmas this year, we should pre plan and start buying as early as possible to reduce that pressure. Colin, the last question I have here is, what are some of the challenges that remain unsolved in the fulfillment space? What might we see next? Well, uh, all right. So I think 
it is an interesting growing space. So for us in ESW, what we've seen is that there's a, a rising amount of, of concerns that uh, retailers have online. And really now there's a commoditization that's happening in the market. So there's from Shopify and from other platforms that the management of a commerce solution, management of a payment solution is available to, to everybody. Uh, where 10 years ago, that wasn't the case. And that means that you have an awful lot of small retailers who are able to reach shoppers that maybe big retailers can't. We have to work out ways to be able to work with those smaller retailers. You know, our background is enterprise retailers and, and engage with those smaller retailers and offer them a product that is compelling and cheap in the beginning. And then it becomes richer as they, as they advance. Because the risk in the market is that if you don't invest in the small retailers while they're small, they won't be available to you when, when they're big. And therefore, you're, you're not able to attract their business at, at the larger side. And so this is a strategy that eShop World has been really focused on. And so there's a, a number of products that we've been releasing. Symphony is our new e-commerce product where we not just extend an existing domestic solution, but we now support full end-to-end a uh, online commerce solution. That's everything from marketing services to product management to international fulfillment. Uh, and we do all of that for us. So that's a, a in kind of a new market offering. We have a, a few customers live on it, but now we're, we're expanding it. We also have a new product as well, which is aimed principally at those smaller retailers. So how they can avail of international commerce from their existing store but with very little cost, how they can onboard in a couple of days and how they can start selling into the international market at a very low investment from their side. So for us, those are going to be the big challenges um, that we have to address. But the, I suppose worldwide or, or in the industry, the challenges that we have to address are the, the regional differences that are emerging. So I talked earlier on about you know, mobile payments. There's also social payments which are coming up. Um, so TikTok now have integrated sales within their platform. And you know, how do eShop World figure in that, in that ecosystem? And we've had conversations with social providers before and partnerships with them, but those aren't our traditional markets. You know, our traditional markets are the retailers. But now we have this new channel on social marketing. And this is huge in, in Asia in particular. And it's a growing trend now in Europe and in the US as well, and something that we just have to get on top of. Fantastic. Colin, it's been super interesting to speak with you today. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks very much. Thanks for your time. Great. So production is always by Albina Krasteva with editing from Adnan Tukar and Evan Sheehan and music by Robert Cooney. Thanks for joining us on the Story of Software podcast.